Yes, here's another moment in history that stands as an unforgettable marker in time. Uh, Man- Nelson Mandela's first speech to a huge crowd in Cape Town. Have a listen after being released from prison that same day in 1990. We call on our white compatriots to join us in the shaping of a new South Africa. to continue the campaign to isolate the apartheid regime. Former President uh, Nelson Mandela in an address that marked a turning point in the dismantling of South Africa's brutal system of racial segregation. For South Africans, their world transformed almost overnight. And my next guest has spent years trying to understand how both blacks and whites have adjusted or not adjusted to change. It seems there's been a heavy psychological price paid for the apartheid era. Eve Fairbanks is a journalist who moved to South Africa in 2009 and she's just released a fascinating book called The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's racial reckoning. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's been so long since I've heard that speech and stayed up at night to watch him walk out of Polesmore Prison. And just in those few words, Mandela indicates part of his vision. We call on our white compatriots, he said, to join us in the shaping of a new South Africa. The freedom movement is a political home for you too. Now, Eve, what do you read into those words? I think he was really sincere. I think, you know, there was a desire to create something in South Africa that had, in a sense, never been created before, which was both a multiracial democracy where people of a variety of ethnic backgrounds, of different kind of situations within the country would all feel invested in this new project in a very, very new way, but also where you know, a group of people that had gone to great lengths, both to sideline and keep second class a majority of the country as a certain group within the country, but had also attempted to almost write them out of history, to write people of color, black South Africans out of history, would be simultaneously made equal or even demographically a minority within that society, you know, almost... Mm inevitably in in a kind of second or third place, just demographically speaking, but would would not be punished. There wouldn't be a kind of reversal of apartheid, would continue to be invited to take part in the project of building the new country. I think at the time, you know, a lot of observers from places like Australia, the UK, the US, maybe uh, thought that the burden was going to be on white South Africans to sort of decide whether they wanted to take part in a country in which they would have to have play a very different role, not as the history writers, not as the leaders, not as the kind of directors of society. And I think it turned out that that the burden was on everybody and on Black South Africans in particular. 
Well, in fact, the white lives, if anything, improved at the outset, uh, much to everybody's surprise. You know, they, sanctions were lifted. Uh, they got a chance to see things they hadn't been able to see. And, and, and actually, their money was a little bit safer. So that was a, just a fascinating um, quirk, I suppose. But look, maybe you could describe how you have written about the complex story of political change. And you focus on three lives in particular as sort of emblematic Yeah, I do. I mean, I made a choice at a certain point. I've lived now in South Africa for 13 years. Prior to that, I was a reporter in Washington, D.C., and I really made an effort at a certain stage not to focus on very top political actors in South Africa um, because politics happens mostly to a variety of, quote, ordinary people, to citizens. That is who politics happens to. So I ended up spending years with three South Africans whose lives I trace from, two of them from about 1970, they grew up under apartheid, to this very, very sudden overturning, almost overnight transfiguration of power relations in their country. And then the daughter of of one of these women who I write about. And I did that partly for myself and partly for the readers to be able to imagine themselves in such a scenario. What, how would you behave? How would you react? I think it's very surprising how these figures, both black and white, react to a kind of upending and, and in a certain sense, reversal of power relations in their country. So you go very deep into both the material ways in which their lives didn't, didn't change, but more importantly, into how they changed the way they thought about how they had behaved as children. Mm. You know, they realized and I realized as I spent a lot of time in the country that that you both have to reconsider your future and you have to rewrite your own past and rethink, well, you know, what, do you mean what about, you've what do you tolerated. Mean? Well, go on about that, please, because that's very crucial to your um, in- insights. You know, I think for people in... Uh, more developed countries that have political trajectories that can feel very fragile, but are actually a little bit more stable or static. Um, it can be a little bit hard to imagine, but let's take the U.S. Imagine that 75 or 80 percent of the, the, the Congress was black, the, not only the president, but kind of all of his advisors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, people running the universities, people writing news columns. Um, it's just a very different way of thinking about the country's heritage, its founding, the texture of its history, its myths, and taking white people, let's say, on the one hand, it's suddenly thrown into relief everything that you didn't do, let's <laughs> yeah. say. As a, yeah. And, and so you really have to reconsider who you were what you thought was okay and normal, these very micro ways that you behave towards people around you, what you didn't protest, I guess. Well, uh, look, for listeners' clarity, you have a mother, is Mm -hmm. it Depuo? Is that how you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Yes. Depuo. She is a very interesting person because she was uh, a single mother. She actually was quite an activist and she's haunted in a way by some violent actions she took as an anti-apartheid activist. You've got her daughter, Malaika, who's a very prominent intellectual who is wondering about what she's really inherited, you know, intellectual in modern South Africa. And you 
you've got Christo, the lawyer, a white lawyer, Africana lawyer, and he seems astounded by the fact, Eve, that black South Africans have never meted out vengeance. And, um, you know, he struggled to cope with that in a funny sort of way. Yeah, that was one of the most surprising things for me, which was as this political transformation takes place and people's roles within their society are shifting, it turns out that people who used to be in power, white South Africans who used to have a lot of influence over their society, they come to feel resentful that indigenous South Africans, black South Africans, um, South Africans of color aren't angrier at them. Because in a way, if black South Africans were really pursuing them, were really angry, were were kind of materially going after their wealth in a very extreme way, that would justify the way that they behaved. Is it a sort of survivor's guilt? I think there's an element of that, but there's also, (laughs) you know, one of the ways that, that white South Africans live with what their community did, not necessarily individuals, is to say that, look, if the tables were turned, if South Africans of color were in our power position, they would have acted, they would act the same way. They would marginalize us. They would, you know, really try to take our labor for free, cut us out, whatever. That's just the way that humans behave. That's the nature of power. And if Black South Africans do not act that way and kind of leave them alone to some degree, then that makes the way that they acted when they had power, when they uh, under apartheid, seem more disgraceful. Disgraceful. And so mm. white South Africans, as a community in certain respects, I would encourage people to read the book because it's quite a complex idea, mm. but they they become quite bitter, some of them, that black South Africans are not wreaking revenge against them. Yes, it's quite, it is quite amazing. You, I note you begin the book with a telling quote from Jeremiah. My inheritance mm. has become like a lion in the forest. I presume this is, which is a very unsettling analogy, that's what you're trying to tap this somehow, are you? Yeah, I look, I used to uh, do a lot of singing in Anglican churches, although I'm Jewish, and we had a, a piece that we sang and it had that line and it always stayed with me. I think there's an element in there too that that I used to think of that line uh, when it came to Black South Africans and the many that I knew. You spoke of Dipuo. We kind of follow her life we come to know her almost as a friend, um, which throughout the book. And in a sense, the paradox or the complexity of her post-apartheid journey is that in certain respects, when it comes to her community, she got what she wanted in a way that, let's say, Black Lives Matter activists have not had the opportunity mm. yet to do in the U.S. Not necessarily that her own material life was was changed so much, but in terms of seeing figures from within her community that had been heroes to her being at the very top of all of these, you know, of universities, of power structures. She got that. And she then had to face a question, which in a way, when she was an activist, you know, which she had less power that she realized. She had a simplified cause though, didn't she? She didn't, she did. And she hadn't Mm. really, in her view, as she described to me at length, she hadn't faced actually what she really wanted. Did she want to wield the same kind of power as white South Africans wielded? Did she want the same level of wealth? Did she want to live a similar life or did she want to 
to really transfigure the society and turn it into something different. How invested was she in the heritage of this country and sort of stewarding it and, and living up to certain kind of, let's say, Western standards of hmm. ambition, of achievement, of how one lives? Or did she want to really, you know, create something much more socialist? And And she realized, I think, that she had both been in great opposition to and had a lot of anger toward white South Africa, but also envied a certain way of life that they'd had. And she only realized this when she was in a very different position than I think certainly a lot of American activists have have yet been in. Let me just uh, tell listeners, uh, Eve Fairbanks is my guest. She's written this quite intriguing book called The Inheritors, an intimate portrait of South Africa's reckoning. Now, as you know, Eve, a lot of South Africans came to Australia. Do you think diaspora South Africans are going through something similar? I don't even know whether you've, you've actually considered that. I have considered that. I I know, you know, over 13 years, I've known people who've emigrated from South Africa to Perth. And I think that there are a whole huge range of reasons that people do that. And the South African community in Australia is adds a ton of richness to Australia. They maintain a lot of ties to South Africa. It's a great and interesting community. I do think, I don't know how people are going to feel about this, uh, certainly in South Africa, people are aware that there's a kind of a psychological incentive for South African emigres, for the South African diaspora, to have a pretty dark view of the trajectory of South Africa. And you you don't even have to be a cynic or super negative, but it takes a huge amount to leave your homeland, to leave forever, Mm. to become a citizen of another country. And South Africans have very deep and complex and loving feelings toward the country, even those who are pessimistic about it. And so you have to tell yourself repeatedly that the country is going to the dogs. And I find the dialogue about South Africa overseas, uh, I'm more familiar with it in the US, but somewhat in Australia, to be really interesting because it's a certain portrayal from a distance of South Africa that partly is generated to comfort those who have left. And I think that's just, it's its not, it's a human thing. It's a thing mm-hmm. that we do when we have to pull up stakes from our country. So it's important, I think, for, for Americans and for Australians and for whoever to read accounts of the country that are done by people who are still living there. You have said that South Africa loosely collapses hundreds of years of American history, which you know well, into about 50 years. South Africans didn't have the uh, luxury of waiting, you know, things just move faster, and that it perhaps offers a glimpse into the American future. Now, how so? I certainly think that of all countries on earth, South Africa has the most historical parallels with the United States. If the U.S. is looking for a country for which it's history on race, you know, there's some overlaps. That would be South Africa. And you have a situation in the in the late 1980s, mid 1980s, where uh, interracial marriage was illegal in South Africa. Um, It was illegal for black South Africans to walk without a almost like a hall pass in certain neighborhoods that were white only. You know, you had these segregated beaches, segregated water fountains, something that was not only like Jim Crow, but almost hearkened in many ways to the antebellum era in the U.S. Well, you say they went over and had a look. There were people from South Africa who went to explore it. 
people from South Africa in the 1950s, government officials did a kind of a tour of Alabama and Jim Crow in order to get an idea of what they might implement in mm. South Africa. And they took that back. And then over the course of the 90s, you had a rapid, at least at the top in, in South African politics and at certain news organizations, a kind of transition to a situation that we don't even yet have in the U.S., which is a kind of a scenario that really reflects the national uh, demographics, which we we still don't have in the U.S. in terms of who's telling the story of the country. So, you know, South Africa has very different demographics than the United States. um, But in terms of how people react to a very real, very stark transition in, let's say, the demographics of the public square, who's talking about the country, who are the news anchors, who's directing the curriculum. We have a lot of fights right now in the U.S. about school curriculum mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what should it say? You, you just had a switch in South Africa to if you're a white or a black South African, that type of type of fight isn't really going to happen. You know, are we going to retain a kind of heroic history? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you have to rewrite it. And so I think it's really a very powerful, very intriguing, very psychologically kind of complex and surprising, almost thought experiment for, let's say, Americans to put themselves in. What What is this going to be like, you know, decades down the line? How absolutely fascinating. Look, thank you very much indeed. We've only skimmed the surface of your various nuanced insights, so I do appreciate <laughs> your time. And I know that South African Australians will do too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Eve Fairbanks, uh, her book is The Inheritors, An Intimate Portrait of South Africa's Racial Reckoning. It's a Simon & Schuster publication. And just a quick mention after our discussion last uh, uh, time uh, on the Kennedy assassination, various listeners have suggested an SBS program that went to air last week, The Smoking Gun. So that'll be on SBS On Demand, no doubt. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.